Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. at sea. This is George Spalding, Executive VP, Pink Elephant, and this is Practitioner Radio number 66. And with me today, as always, is my illustrious colleague, Troy Dumoulin. Troy, say a few words. Good afternoon, good evening, and hello, George. Hi, Troy. And also a special guest. We have a special guest at today's show. And the special guest is someone that both Troy and I have known for, boy, how long have we known each other, Robin? A decade? About, sure. Wow, that's scary. So uh, with us today is Robin Heisick. Robin has been uh, with Pink and then not with Pink and back with Pink, uh, what we call sometimes at the world of Pink a boomerang pinker. And um, Robin is the lead in our organizational change management initiative. And Troy's going to correct me and say it's an organizational change management practice. I was going to go there until you corrected yourself. But you're going to now explain it, though. So a practice is a competency area. So in a practice, you have lots of different things about a specific topic. You have potentially education, which we have and we're very proud of. Uh, But we've been talking about organizational change and various models for decades. So, you know, George, uh, Gary, and Jack would say this is not new. This simply, you know, we recently had a course. And, of course, our events. uh, We have change management tracks. And so we really do believe that it's really more about people, 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 process, and technology. So it's important to pay attention to. We need to, since we're obviously credentialed, Troy, at least in the world of practitioner radio, because we've been doing it so long, I think it's important to credential Robin at this point. Robin, I took this class from you, and I, until that point, I thought that you were basically really smart. But after the class, I got really scared because of just how smart you are when it comes to this particular topic. You want to tell, I think you have some degrees in this stuff. Thanks, George. Yes. Actually, my, uh, we won't go to my undergraduate degree. That's not relevant. But I do have a master's degree in information systems. I acquired that a while back. And the reason being is that I was working with folks in a library setting who were all PhD and masters and developing systems for them and thought I'd better get the same credential that they have. Later, I went on to get a master's degree in organizational development. And the reason for going into that program is that I found out, I think like most people, very quickly that working within IT and working within systems is easy compared to the transition that people that we're impacting by technology have to make. And so I thought, wow, I better focus on the people side and wanted to get that credential as well. Cool. See, I told you she was scary smart. So we have spent, gosh, I don't know how long, 20 years, I think, Troy and I almost, talking about things like ITIL, And more recently, talking about Lean IT and Agile and all these different elements that we keep bringing up and reading about and things like that. And 
they all they're all great ideas. There's nothing wrong with any of them, except the fact that this the theory, this thing that's written down, lean IT or whatever, involves a transformation of the organization. Yeah, attitude behavior. Can't happen without people. So we've been teaching the theory for 10 or 15 years of ITIL, knowing full well that the people part of it was an element that we weren't talking about. Talk to us a little bit more about that. So, yeah, George, and, you know, we've been talking about ITIL, and as you said, even talking about lean, and people have put a lot of investment in creating new processes or looking for ways to improve practices within project management and within looking at process and making sure that we are pulling out waste. Yet, like in many projects, whether it be an ITIL project or whether it be lean or whether it be automating a manual business flow, we do forget to talk about the people. It seems like we just expect that people will jump on board and find an easy time of transitioning to doing something new. And we don't always succeed in what we hope to get in terms of the benefits of our projects without having done that. But they should just see the blind logic and the beauty of this thing that we're describing and just follow us down the path toward nirvana or something better, at least, than they're currently experiencing. Isn't that so much to ask? I mean, really? So, you know, Troy, once upon a time, a thousand years ago, I went to a session and you were delivering the session. And you were talking about different kinds of leadership in the the session. You were talking about things like command and control, and then you were talking about other things. And... You know, maybe you and and Robin can talk about how that how those different types of organizations actually enter into the picture of change management. Sure. Yeah. So command and control, too. We think it, actually it might be easier to change situations with command and control because we hope people are just going to follow behind the directives that are are given. Again, sometimes we're surprised when they don't for various reasons, and. Again, it's because we aren't catering to them. But I actually want to go back to to Troy, what you just said earlier with, you know, why don't people just get on our bandwagon and where we have come up with something that is what we believe to be so easy and so logical and and why can't they understand it? Well, I love to say, I love the saying, everything's easy when you know how. And the people who are, whether it's from the top command and control or somebody with a great new way of doing things, they see it and they spend time researching and deciding on what change they're going to make. And so they're to a point where it is easy. And then we spring it on other people who haven't reached that point and might not even understand why we believe this is an important thing to do. And therefore, there's a big disconnect in time between when we got comfortable with doing something and then expecting everybody else to just be there with us. They're later on down the change curve. The other side of this is that change always has a cost. Uh, it's a cost and effort, and mental capability of learning new behaviors. It's changing systems. There is some cost to move from A to Z, A to Z here in Canada. One of the, the interesting things that I took out of the class that you taught, Robin, was a model called um, the change formula by Beckert and Harris. And I have been using this model in every single executive conversation uh, that I've ever done since that class. 
Uh, it's not something that I was familiar with before. You know, I had talked about the Kubler-Ross and those types of models, but this one made sense to me. And so this change costs. Everything has a cost because we're comfortable with what we know. And if we're comfortable with it, we like to stay there. Moving us beyond that is a difficult scenario. But this Beckerton and Harris model looks at it this way. It's, a, it's kind of a mathematical calculation, but not, but it looks like this. So first of all, you have A. A is the current cost of sitting still, staying where we are, the cause and effect of having multiple beliefs, multiple systems, multiple whatevers, uh, the impact on velocity, the impact on waste. Basically, there's a cost of our current environment. Then there's B, which is this wonderful thing I have now demonstrated to you. I have described this wonderful nirvana, this promised land, and we'll get there eventually. And then there is C, which is, it's one thing to tell me this wonderful end state, but what is the iterative one, two, three steps that I'm going to have to take step by step to actually get to that point? So I have a logical understanding. So the formula works like this. It's kind of like A, cost of current state, times B, the beautiful nirvana, times C, which is this premise of iterative step. Now, those three things together have to be greater than D, the cost of staying put, <laughs> or the cost of change, the actual change uh, element we talked about. And if any one of those things is zero in this multiplication concept, I am never going to get you to convince you that moving to this new state of affairs is actually worth it because the cost seems too much. And a lot of times what George and I and you have been doing over the years, we've been talking about this wonderful best practice, this end state, this when we get there, life will be so much better. We'll even give you the roadmap, the step one, two, and three. But that return on investment calculation requires me to know what the current cost is. And unless we do that in evaluation, measure the current cost, we'll never convince anyone that it's worthwhile stepping off the concept of where you are and move forward. And so in doing that, Troy, so if you're looking at, at, at just me and, and there's something you want, if you want to make a change and therefore I'm somebody who needs to personally make this transition and I am really not happy with my current work practices, it's too hard, there's 25 steps and yet I've been doing them all along. So even though it's painful, I kind of just keep doing it. Then as a change manager, then part of what you can be doing to help with that formula and to help increase my awareness of how much I've been complaining and how unhappy I am, you can then elevate or increase the level of cost to me for the uh, A in that equation, which is that I am not happy with the status quo. Have to make you aware of your pain. And so there are things that we could do as change agents or change managers to really kind of help that formula along. You, you brought up the fact that uh, the people deciding to make the change or deciding to move forward with the change are probably already at a point where perhaps the uh, other folks aren't there yet. And so, so is, there, is there a specific type of leadership that's really required in terms of a change effort? Um, what are the kind of the leadership qualities we're looking for when, when somebody says, as Troy says, I've, I've brought you to the promised land. Here it is. Come on. What's your problem? Step across the river. You can do it. You know, what is the type of leadership we're looking for? Yes. Yeah, so in terms of leadership, one of the things that leaders and change managers 
can really do is involve people early on. So as we said, leaders oftentimes are already 10 steps ahead and they've had to evaluate what gains and losses that they personally have of the change. So if if leaders are authentic in their ability to bring people in and in terms of um, helping people understand their individual losses and gains that they they are going to either perceive to have happened to them because of this change or be real to that that they're going to happen with these change and, and evolve early on and, and communicate often and communicate in multiple ways, not just uh, an email message saying this is what's going to happen in this organization, but being involved with people and, and listening to them and, and understanding where they're coming from. All of that is huge in a, gaining trust in the leader who's who's made this decision, whether by choice or because they've had to make this decision to make this change, and a feeling of empathy and being heard and and for somebody to actually want to be involved in, in the change and be part of the solution as well as the path forward. There's an old saying that people don't resist change, they resist being changed. Yes. So <laughs> yes. if you don't involve them, there's only one possible scenario. It's called resentment. Yes. Change is happening to me. I'm not changing. It's happening to me. Yes. And and that also gets in with different models that we talk about. At Pink Elephant, we really talk heavily and are very much invested in the John Cotter model of or process of planned change. And in that, it is first, what is the sense of urgency? And so really that's getting into why. Why do we have to make this change in this organization? And when people understand the why, and this gets a little bit into what you just said, Troy, when they understand the why, then they can more often than not accept that this has to happen. If they can't understand the why, then it's meaningless to them and they have they question why do I want to get on board with something that doesn't seem relevant? Well, it's not just why the, the sense of urgency from a Cotter standpoint is not just why do we have to do this, but why do we have to do it now? Yes. You know, because everybody often says, you know, they'll often say, uh, yeah, yeah, I can see why this is important. Let's do it next year. Let's put it off. Let's not do it right now. And gaining agreement to that urgency and why changes by different cultures. I think you were you were alluding to the Deal and Bowman model when you were talking about that command and control because there's different types of culture. Mm-hmm. One that kind of is definitely vertically oriented in how decisions are made. Another one is political in that sense. It's not about vertical decision-making. It's about power bases and building coalitions of, you know, strength that is stronger than the opposing force. Another one is where you have an HR culture. It's all about the people experience and the life work balance. And another one is the concept of symbolic, where the leader's call to action is is a key consequence. But the key premise, without going into that model very deeply, is what turns one group on to the vision of the promised land will be very different than another. So you have to know the organizational context of how to convince and win friends and influence people. Yes. And, and, and when we're doing that influence too, is to be very uh, acutely aware of emotion. And so as we announce change, people react emotionally to the change. And one of uh, we, what we call seven principles of stakeholders, the stakeholder engagement is being aware that emotion trumps reason. And so there's multiple books, multiple authors who talk about how to 
look in terms of of people's emotions. In in fact, there's is a book Heath and, and Heath are the authors that talk about you know we we have make multiples of changes in our lives, and even if a change is hard to get from point A to point B, if someone is emotionally aware and is emotionally wanting to make that change, they go, oh yeah, okay, this is, you know, I could do this. But if we haven't tied into the emotions of the person and really gotten them excited about the path forward or about something new, then that comes across as a level of of resistance. And it's because we just haven't tailored uh, our communications and our engagement strategies to really hit those points that resonate with people. And in a way, Troy, this is tying back to Beckard and Harris again in terms of, you know, what do they dislike about their current way of operating and what is this wonderful new way that we have for people so that will make life, in many cases, easier for them. So basically emotion eats logic for lunch. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is what Cotter found out, right, uh, George, in his book, The Heart of Change, when he changed from leading change to the heart of change, it was all about its, its emotion. It's, it's really back to the heart. Yes. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> Wasn't that it? Yeah. Well, the, other, the other piece of what you're talking about is something you alluded to, you know, many minutes ago, Robin, which is the timing element. Often when the leader presents the change to folks, they're also presented with a schedule yes. of when this change is going to take place and how soon this is going to happen and when this is going to happen and when this is going to happen. And it's all laid out for them. And there's not really an emotional context to that from the leadership standpoint, but there's a heavy emotional context from the recipient, if you will, standpoint. They're, they may not move as fast as the schedule. Yeah, actually, that's pretty interesting because there's an author that we talk about a lot, a book that I like a lot, uh, Managing Transitions by an author by the name of William Bridges. And he has two terms that he uses. One is the term change. And change is what you said, George, is following your project plan with your deadline and we will be complete with whatever event technology change or process change or organizational change by X date. That's change. The other term he uses is transition. Transition is individual. And so for everyone impacted by this change, they need to make a personal transition. And we can't give a date to that. Uh, we can't say, actually, <laughs> I'm thinking of a, uh, an Archie Bunker, if anybody remembers that episode with Edith going through the change and Archie Bunker saying, okay, this has to be over right now. This is done now. <laughs> and actually that's what leaders are doing. Okay, we're done next. And, and people aren't through their individual transitions. We can't predict how quickly or, or how slowly people are going to go through these transitions. It's our job to help them along, not to mandate an exact end date. We can help them along by recognizing that there's a, there's definitely a, you know, a transitional process, but you know we're scheduling that change at six o'clock. But I can't tell you exactly when I'm going to be okay with it. <laughs> right. right. Well, it's I, I see it now. Uh, you know, I've I'm a little up up in years from you two, and I see you know several of our friends have lost their spouse, and there really is a very different way of and a very different schedule to the grief that those people are feeling. Some, you know, were sad and moved on. Others just can't get over it. 
I mean, it's and it's the same, you know, basic conversation. We we lose something. We mourn what we're losing because that's what people really feel. I'm losing something. This new thing is not as good as the old thing. I'm losing it. Yes, and actually when we talk about that, there's gains and losses to everything and, and oftentimes just because of us being human. I, I don't know why this psychology exists because we're human, but because we're human, we seem to focus on the losses and, and sometimes magnify those losses. So people need to go through something similar that you're talking about uh, of someone being ill or someone dying, a spouse or a parent dying. It's the same kind of process that people need to go through in making changes. And yeah. people will go through that even when they are gaining something, because even in gaining something, there's a, you're, you're losing another thing. So even taking a wonderful job promotion and, and more salary, you might be losing the fact that you had more flexibility without having to manage people or manage projects. So... People, it might seem funny to people on the outside and looking in at somebody trying to go through these stages, but they need to work it out through the best mechanism they can and with the best help that we can give them. So this mourning concept, like you said, even if it's something that was you were grumbling about, at least you were darn good at it or you <laughs> felt you were and you were comfortable in that space. You were consciously competent. You knew how to handle it and you didn't have to think about you know, when something came down the pipe at you what to do. It was kind of an automatic response. Now you're in an uncertain situation, a better situation, but you're now the novice and you're, you know, you're having to build relationships and you're having to start from the beginning. So to move from this... I've got it and I've been there for so long and I know how to deal with any situation to this uncertainty, that is, that's painful. There's a cost to that. Yes. Even just look at uh, taking a new job in a new, in a new location and, and first day of work and you might be a subject matter expert and you probably are a subject matter expert on why you've been hired. But on, on day one, where's the bathroom? Um, where is the cafeteria? Uh, will I get ticketed if I park somewhere that has a, it doesn't have a work sign on it? So there's all of those things that seem little, but they could be magnified on day one through, you know, week two that is beyond your comfort. How do I get an outside line? And yes. this gets back to the, the conversation Troy had a while back, which was the cost of change. When you go from this consciously competent, I'm, I'm hitting on all eight cylinders, to being unconsciously or consciously incompetent, which means I know I don't know anything, um, it takes me a while to ramp up. And it takes everybody a while to ramp up. And that's going to be reflected in a significant loss of productivity. And I'm not sure that every leader that I've ever seen understood that there was going to be that huge dip in productivity as people were learning the new whatever. Yes, yeah, sometimes we hear that dip called the valley of despair or the valley of tears. And you're right, George. The it is inevitable. We're going to have that to some degree because, as Troy said, we're people are leaving their comfort zone. 
the role of change management and the role of a change manager is to make sure that it, it's known that this dip in performance and maybe in maybe making more errors is going to happen. But the job is to understand that it will happen. However, to try to keep the timeline from a one level of performance to uh, maintaining a high level performance short, the dip short, and I'll call it shallow. And so that the dip performance dip doesn't go down too far. Through that, we also need to think of people are people come to work to to do their best work. And they are going to be trying as hard as they can to get to this new place where they are now resume mastery of, of this new skill. And so maybe during that period of time, we need to provide some temporary feedback situations for them or different kinds of encouragement for them. We might need to, you know, even have maybe a temporary measurement system. So if someone is supposed to produce 25 widgets a day, that for a period of time they're measured on, I don't know, 20 widgets a day so that they know that we are giving them time to get through and get back to a new comfort zone and become mastery at a new skill. We're all old enough to remember the the concept where businesses were handled manually and suddenly they got computers. And that was that change was handled incredibly badly in most organizations. Um, now we're way beyond that. Now we switch systems out or we take a system that people have, you know, blood, sweat and tears in order to learn this system and become um, facile at operating this system and suddenly we yank it out and put in something new, that's that's where people get incredibly frustrated. Like, I thought I had learned what I needed to learn, quote, until retirement. And of course, that's <laughs> just not true. It's never true, really. But I don't think in many cases that the people presenting the change, that the people with the brilliant utopian idea understand what they're doing to the people under them. Yeah. And I think there's also, correct me if I'm wrong, George, because you're further along, as you put it, <laughs> less patience. Singing boy, <laughs> this is the first time you've ever sung on the practitioner radio show. <laughs> All right, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> Maybe as we get a little bit further in our years and experience, we get less patience with change. We have less cycles for for change. That may be true or not. You tell me. I believe it's true, but I think that in at my stage of the game, there's a fear of of not of not changing. In other words, we all in, in my family, we watched uh, my wife's father, who lived to ninety, be completely baffled in his later years by something as simple as a TV remote and an answering machine. And certainly cell phones and all of that were just way beyond him. And the fear is that as we get uh, into 60s and 70s, you know, we're we're going to uh, lose that kind of edge, if you will. We're also going to lose contact with our grandchildren and our children because that's the only way they talk. They all, the only way they talk to us is texting and photos, texting photos and texting videos and the rest of it. So uh, for us, I think there's a huge fear of being out of it, if you will, mm -hmm. and of not being part of the mainstream. So that's the cost of not changing, which is another interesting element of the Beckard model, 
you know, the cost of current state and the cost of staying put. I'm staying put. Okay, so Robin, this has been a good conversation. I want you to just tell us in some respect what it is about organizational change management that you know and that, that we've, you know, Troy and I have learned by attending your class, um, that we, we understand now that we didn't understand before. So tell us kind of the, the big highlight reel, if you will, of organizational change management? Well, the interesting thing, George, about organizational change management is it's a growing discipline and actually it borrows from multiple disciplines. So it borrows from psychology, from behavioral science, from sociology, from advertising, from marketing. And so in terms of understanding it completely, it is making sure that we are using what works from those those different disciplines and and bringing them in. So it's all about understanding individual and individual motivation. It's about understanding organizations and organizational culture and how to navigate through organizational culture. And you already stated culture eats strategy for breakfast or lunch. I'm not sure what you said. But really about it, it's understanding stakeholders and that stakeholders all come from different positions. We think that a change will work across an organization because in our little cocoon of building out new processes or building out new technologies seems easy. It seems to work for us. But in terms of understanding the different stakeholders and what they need to go through and how the business process changes affect them and might affect other business processes that we couldn't even have imagined helps us better prepare for the different types of reactions and the different needs in organizations and make sure that we are catering to them as part of our our change program. So that was kind of a long answer that danced around a number of things, but it really is, it's taking all of these disciplines that we borrow from and making use of them holistically to understand the nature of organizations and people. That has nothing to do with IT, that all of the disciplines you talked about, none of them were IT, that this organizational change management is about change. The fact that IT makes some changes, the fact that other type parts of the organization make changes as well. I'll say one last thing. Good. I was going to give you that opportunity. There you go. I was hoping so. I'll simply say the only constant in this universe is change. That's it? That's all you're going to (laughs) say? And you can either manage change or it manages you. Hey, there you go. (laughs) All right, with that... Okay, we're, we're over time now. All right, thank you very much, Robin Heisick, who is, as I said, the lead at Pink Elephant in our organizational change management practice. This is George Spaulding for Troy Dumoulin saying thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.